This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Mark McDonald, thank you for joining me in the trenches. <laughs> thank you for having me. I say trenches because uh, we're in a war, aren't we? I think we are. Uh, and I think that the sooner we come to that realization, the better. Uh, we've been in a war that was somewhat silent for quite a long time, and I think it, it really took off about 18, 20 months ago. And now we're in the sort of middle stages. Uh, in the United States, we're in a, really a purge state at this point, purging mm -hmm. military, SEALs, police, firemen, doctors, uh, thinkers, uh, basically anybody that uh, engages in wrong thought is being literally purged from mm. their jobs, from their places of worship, from their homes, their schools. They're being uh, isolated, segregated, ostracized. And of course, as we all know through the history of the 20th century, the next stage in the purge is prison, torture, and death. I just saw today that uh, I am not allowed to enter the United States unless I can prove that I am vaccinated against COVID-19. As of today, you are correct. That was just announced uh, last night. I read it in the paper myself this morning. The United States spin in the federal government is, the United States is now reopening its borders for international travel. But if you look at the details, it's exactly what she said. It's reopened only to those who have agreed to receive the FDA-approved so-called vaccinations. And there's a very large number of people around the world who received the Sputnik Russian vaccine especially Mexicans, and they cannot enter the United States with that, uh, that product. So it's, it's really not a reopening. It's actually a closing down of the borders. Mark, what is it that you do? Psychiatry. I work with young people, primarily children and adolescents. I also work with adults uh, as part of my practice. I have a private clinic here in West Los Angeles, California. Been here for about 10 years. And I do therapy and medications for people who have emotional and behavioral problems. It's not a hospital. It's uh, it's not a staffed building. I am my my own boss, and I see the people that I want to see, and they choose to be with me because uh, they wish to. I don't take insurance, so everything is very voluntary, and I like it that way. Mm. And um, I would have to say that in the last couple of years, things have really changed. I was a very private, quiet, non-public psychiatrist. And it's really only when I started to see significant problems in my practice with my patients declining in their emotional and physical well-being and then seeing how that was reflected out and about in society at large, especially here in Los Angeles, that I started to go beyond my professional psychiatric training of helping people with their problems and speaking out and doing interviews like this one to try to explain what I think is uh, an important perspective on what's happening in the world because in my view, what's going on right now is really not a medical crisis really at all. It's, it's a much larger crisis about control, about setting precedents for control, about purging, about really manipulating information so that freedom of speech is no longer really a possibility, even for those who wish to speak out. This is a really big, big issue. Um, and I, I think that focusing on it from a medical point of view, which is the way that a lot of people have been wrapped up 
into is is not really the best approach. I think at best it's a distraction, and at worst it, it's really allowing for the more nefarious outcomes to come to fruition much more quickly. One of your focuses is children, um, and oh, I'm loath to to ask questions about that. But what is mental illness in children specifically, and how do you how do you define it? Well, up until recently, mental illness was primarily environmentally induced. I would work with families who had broken marriages and their kids would be stressed out because uh, father's divorcing mother, mother's divorcing father, alcoholism, perhaps some physical abuse at home. That was the predominant cause of, of suffering of children. There is, of course, some organic illness in psychiatry with kids. I mean, ADHD is considered to be organic, although I think there's also environmental intru- uh, influences about inattention, hyperactivity. But there is some neurologic wiring changes in kids that, that have this condition diagnosed. Same thing with um, severe depression. Some kids are born with genetics that predispose them to being depressed. So I don't want to pretend that everything is, is coming from the outside. But with kids, a lot of it is. And so if you work on the environment, you work on health and sleep and diet, uh, you give family therapy to the parents, the kids really do get better. Uh, kids tend to thrive in good, healthy environments. They, they soak in what they're planted in. And it's really uh, been very distressing for me to see the causes of mental illness really shifting in the last couple of years away from what I used to see as, as traditionally treatable problems. And now I'm finding myself really um, fairly bereft of options because short of changing the whole society, there's very little I can do for these kids now. They're, they're really suffering. And it's not just their families. They're suffering from a societal malaise. Have you seen a, an uptick in the last 18 months or so? Oh, absolutely. Uh, anxiety, depression, they've skyrocketed. The kids that were teetering or collapsing, the kids that were doing well or barely getting by. Even the federal government here in the U.S. issued a report back in April stating that the increased prevalence of anxiety and depression were 300 and 400 percent respectively in this country. That's an enormous increase compared to the previous year. We're talking about 12 months, three to four times an increase. And you, of course, can then correlate that with increased substance abuse, increased suicide. The four Mm -hmm. counties in Southern California, the coroners of those four counties, issued a report a few months ago showing an increase in suicides in under age 18 individuals compared to the previous year. The number of overdoses of youth up in San Francisco is now significantly higher than almost any other unnatural cause of death. I haven't lost a patient in my practice ever to unnatural causes, never in 12 years. I lost two patients last year. One was only 15 years old and he overdosed on fentanyl in his own home. 15? In his own home, 15 years old. He couldn't go to school, so he was sitting in his bedroom playing video games all day. Couldn't play football because football's too dangerous for kids. God forbid they should spread the Rona. So guess what he did? He took out his phone, he went to Snapchat, he ordered a courier delivery of what he thought was Xanax but it was laced with fentanyl. And one milligram of fentanyl is enough to kill a human being. One milligram, that's the tip of a, of a pen. That's he died within seven minutes. Seven minutes, his father found him dead, face down, in his bedroom, blue, lying in a pool of his own vomit. 
His father was bringing him a sandwich. He was downstairs cooking him grilled cheese. Came upstairs, hey, you want a sandwich? Saw his father, saw his son lying there dead. Couldn't resuscitate him. Gone. And that obviously now, you know, extends to adults. I mean, the amount of, of course. anxiety, depression, stress has been immense, hasn't it? And it's and it's literally been forced onto people by the authorities, not by any pathogen. Well, that's what's so disturbing about this. If we were in a war, I think people would actually be healthier. Literally a, a, a war. And I mean a war of conflict, of people with guns and bombs. I don't mean a war of ideas. We are in a war, but it's, it's, a, it's a, a war that doesn't have an enemy's face. We can't fight it. So American adults are suffering terribly. And I can say this because they come to me in my practice. They're anxious. They're depressed. They're, they're using alcohol as a coping mechanism. Many of them are now smoking pot almost nightly. They've gone back to using methamphetamines, cocaine. A lot of them are losing their tempers and beating their wives and their children. I've never seen this before. And none of this is because of anything that just fell upon us, like, say, a virus. This has nothing to do with a virus. This has to do with a ratcheting effect, a tightening of a screw every single day by politicians, by bureaucrats, and, and now, of course, by private businesses that are putting pressure on people to conform, to behave in a certain way that fits a paradigm of compliance and control. And it's been like this from the very beginning. And people don't know which end is up. They don't know who to believe. They don't know who to trust. They don't know what information is true, what information is false. They're very, very frustrated. And when people are frustrated and they're afraid, they tend to go into a kind of trauma mode where they just freeze. They, they, they just stand there and they wait for someone to tell them what to do because they don't know what else to do. And that's where many people are right now. They're, they've just become sort of compliant sheep. And they're not happy sheep. They're miserable sheep. Uh, but they are actually still sheep. You've referred to this as a pandemic of fear. What do you mean by that? Well, I actually wrote a book which is coming out in a few days. It was going to be titled Pandemic of Fear, uh, but I think we've gone a bit beyond that. Uh, so we're retitling it to United States of Fear because this is really a national crisis on a, a political social level. It's not just psychological anymore. But the root is the same. The, the core seed that I think was planted a year or two ago, which I call the, uh, the pandemic of fear, in my view, is really a vehicle. It's a fuel source, essentially, to perpetuate a goal and get to an end point, which is not to have people afraid. It's to have people controlled. And I don't believe it's very easy to control a population that is either joyful or fearless. And I have been calling this out for probably over a year now, letting people know that even if you're afraid, and many people are still afraid, they certainly were terrified in the first nine to 12 months of this, you still must act in spite of your fear. You cannot allow your emotions to control and dictate your behavior. I say this to patients in my practice. I say, I don't care whether you're afraid. What I care about is what you do. And if you allow your fear to guide your actions, if you allow your fear to dictate what you won't be willing to do, like say, take a risk, stand up, speak out, then you will really lose everything. So the pandemic of fear, in my view, is a, is a way of uh, encapsulating a more truthful 
description of what has been happening in the last two years, as opposed to a pandemic of a virus. That's a, that's a sideshow. This virus is, is just a, a, a lie. It's a propagandistic tool to perpetuate the real pandemic, which is one of emotion and fear and ultimately of psychological control. So what is the end game? Well, it seems to be shifting, and I'm not pretending to have a crystal ball and to know the answer, but I can definitely see signs of where it's going. Initially, I was concerned, as many people were, about depopulation. I haven't ruled that out, but I think mm -hmm. that that's a, a very difficult thing to prove. And I know a lot of yeah. people have good theories on it, and I'm, I'm not dismissing that. But I think if you look at what's obviously happening and what is defensible, what is explainable, I think that the first one that comes to mind is control. That one I think is irrefutable. And I think that you can also make the argument that in addition to control, there's also, as I said earlier, a purge occurring. And I think that those two go hand in hand because in order to control a population, you have to purge dissent. You have to purge dissidents. You have to purge those who have the power, such as military police, to fight back. You also have to purge people who have intellectual power, who can write, who can speak out. And to do that, of course, you have to control media. So there's a, a sort of a multi-pronged um, process going on. Mm. Obviously, in the United States, these vaccine mandates are part of the purge. Uh, if you were to tell all of the military, if you are a Republican or a conservative or you believe in liberty, you have to go, that would never fly. Uh, that would be a lawsuit immediately. But if you ask people, are you willing to get a vaccine shot that can't help you and might kill you, and you say no, well, now you can use the uh, moniker of, of health and safety to purge those people. So it's a surrogate, really, for uh, purging dissent. After the control, after the purge, the real question is then what's next? I don't have an answer to that. Um, but I do know that the goal right now, at this moment, at least in the United States, is absolutely to take control of the population, to eliminate everybody that acts independently, whether mm. you're an intellectual, a small business owner, a private school, and to reallocate resources and to reallocate allegiance to large institutions that can be working with or controlled by government. And that would be obviously enormously large businesses like Amazon, pharmaceutical corporations, very large media corporations, those that control and monopolize the internet mm. like Amazon. These businesses, these corporations have have succeeded financially uh, to an extent that we've never seen before in history, all at the expense of the more numerous but less powerful and more independent schools, businesses, corporations that have been yeah. uh, legally shuttered and prevented from operating for the last two years, all of course under the guise of health and safety. And when have you heard, Jeremy, in the last 150 years, any dictatorship, any totalitarian health. regime? Health and safety. Exactly. It's always about the good of the people. Always. You never hear a dictator ever stand up yeah. and say, we're going to take over your rights because we want to have more power. Never. They always say it's for your own good. And then it shifts. Um, I just want to, to, to take you on with something. Uh, you mentioned that it's in the United States. It's global. I mean, everything that you're saying, I can relate to. And I'm halfway around the world in comparison to where you are. I only use the word United States and make that specifier because I don't want people to make the assumption that I'm speaking on behalf mm. of the rest of the world. But I absolutely see and observe that it is happening in many places. I am simply not um, mm. as up to date on everything that's happening in the rest of the world or in South Africa where you are as I am here in my home country. But I do acknowledge and I do know 
that it is happening in a very similar fashion in many other countries yeah. in the world. So it's not unique to the United States. I do, I do notice, though, interestingly, that it is happening most severely in the Anglophone countries. Yes. That is very interesting to me because these are all countries that branched out of England, Great Britain, Commonwealth, with core values of Magna Carta, of liberty, of democracy, of freedom, uh, escaping tyranny, escaping lage majesté, and they literally emigrated to all over the world and founded countries like Australia, like Canada, like the United States, like New Zealand, and all of those countries are the most oppressive regimes in the entire world right now. I want to say the West um, as a as a as a term that um, correlates to what you're saying because I want to use it as a proxy to ask you do you, do you think that this purge that you are referring to is also a purge of traditional values like the family because we were talking about kids earlier and I'm wondering if if part of this this mass unemployment social distancing does it damage the family unit and the family structure, which is so critical to, to the health of um, particularly kids? Well, I think that the, the nefarious force that began this a couple of years ago originated from the left, but I think that it is a new form of left destruction. It's not the traditional left because the traditional left is very anti-corporate. There is a, a convergence of traditional left, meaning anti-religion, anti-family, anti-community, pro-state, and pro-corporatism, which I've never really seen before. It, it's, it's really more of a fascistic movement as opposed to a purely left-wing one. It combines elements of both. And it's been highly successful. Every takeover of a country always starts with the forced renunciation of the family's allegiance to one another and its members. And we've seen this in the Soviet Union, we've seen it in China. I have so many friends who emigrated from Hong Kong, and then of course their parents had come from mainland China uh, during that, that purge earlier in the previous century. And they most loudly have told me every single piece of legislation, every single piece of propaganda, every single piece of uh, educational um, misrepresentation in the schools sounds exactly like what they were taught when they were in Hong Kong or they were in China right after the revolution. This idea of informing on your parents, this idea of turning in people who have given birth to you, who have raised and fed and protected you so that the state will prosper. That is a very communist ideology. It's very left. And that is what's happening here in the United States. It's happening in other countries as well. Mm. And of course, there's the whole corporate agenda, which which is linked in with it. But at its core, I think you're absolutely right. You must destroy the family unit first, then the neighborhood, then the community, kill the civic organizations, kill the religions, kill the churches, kill the synagogues. Once that's done, then there really is no more way to ally with your local individual and community. You must ally with the state. I think that is a, a, a very effective and... Um, really universal uh, playbook in the takeover of countries from the 20th century. I mean, what you're saying is true. I mean, a year ago, maybe still now, but I remember neighbors reporting other neighbors for just walking their dog. Yes, it happened in my neighborhood as well. Uh, I had so many examples of this that I spoke about last year of people accosting me in elevators, walking down the street. 
uh, in grocery stores, uh, customers calling managers over because I wasn't wearing a mask. Uh, I had never seen this kind of behavior before in this country. Uh, people tended to turn in those who were actively harming others who were threats. Uh, you don't turn in people because of thoughts, because of um, your own behaviors that don't affect other people. And yet that's what was happening. There was a sense of um, virtue signaling. And, and I would actually go so far as to say, and I wasn't saying this a year ago, but I think it's actually quite prominent now, sadism. There has been an upsurge in the taking pleasure in the experience and provocation of suffering of the other that I have never seen in this country before. True sadism. The things that you would see or read about, about prison camp guards in Vietnam or Germany, where the, the true base evil of a human being was not only being allowed to flourish, but was actually being encouraged and rewarded. And that's what's happened here. The snitch program was put into place in Los Angeles a year ago by Mayor Eric Garcetti which was essentially call your local ambassador. Ambassadors was the name he gave to the um, recipients of the snitch reports. I mean, a lovely name, right? The ambassador. And you would get money if you reported your neighbor or a business that was in operation in violation of the closure orders so that the ambassadors could then call the utility companies and have the gas and electricity shut off at the business. <laughs> this was a real program here in Los Angeles. And this started a year ago. Los I mean, it's, Angeles. It's just, well, we're at ground zero here in the U.S. There's few, fewer cities in the United States that are, are more um, oppressive uh, to uh, basic liberties in life than Los Angeles, California. Why do so many people comply? <laughs> so this is a question I've been wrestling with for a very long time. Uh, I don't think there's a single answer, but let me let me give you one that just came to mind uh, recently that I think has a very powerful psychological component of explanation to it. Um, I've been working on a case uh, in consultation with attorneys that has to do with a young girl, a teenage girl who's now 19, who was repeatedly sexually abused by her father for years. Her father's crazy. He's psychotic. And he would punish her by raping her. He raped her so frequently that by the time she became fertile, she wound up becoming pregnant with his child. Yeah. And the child was born, paternity test was, uh, was given, and of course it was the father, the biological father. Uh, he's now been arrested, he's in jail, he's undergoing um, uh, criminal trial. She's been put into protective custody and she's receiving uh, assistance from the, from the county. What's interesting to me about this, putting aside the horror of the, of the abuse and the incest, is that all of her therapist's notes say the same thing. She cannot talk about her abuser, her father, and find him to be a bad person in her own eyes. Nor can she accept that he's actually in jail and will go to prison. In fact, what she wants most desperately is to reunite with him and to be in the same home with him. Now you look at me like, what? I can see it in your face right now. This is crazy. Why on earth would a girl who's been raped yeah. by her own father for years and bears his child still want to be with him? Why can't she see him for the monster that he is? Yeah. Well, there's a very, very simple psychological explanation for this. If she were to attack her father in her own mind, if she were to see him as the monster that he is, she would need to repudiate him. She would, 
she would expulse him from her life, from her mind. She would essentially kill the archetypal father inside of her. And we only have one biological father. We can't get a replacement. There's no way to replace dad. So what happens when she kills him off in her mind? Now she's an orphan. She's alone. She has no dad. Take this on to a macro level across society. Think of the government as the father. And the government is the father for many of us in the Western world. I mean, look at Western Europe. There is no dad. There is no mom. Everybody's just a ward of the state. They're all getting welfare. They're on the dole. Everybody's following orders from the government about how many hours to work. Uh, you can't live independently in Western Europe. It's entirely socialized. Same in Canada, same in New Zealand, same in Australia, same in the U.S. to, to some degree. So if the government is the father for the population, and we acknowledge as a people, and of course as individuals, because we're collectively made up of individuals in any society, that the government has been abusing us like this father was, was raping and abusing her daughter for the last couple of years. If we acknowledge that our government is the abuser, not our savior, not our protector, but our abuser, we would then have to toss the government out of our own mind as being legitimate. And then what are we left with? We're left with nothing. We don't have a government left. And so how do you reform a government that's so, so perverse, so sick? You can reform a father that spanks you, but a father that rapes you? There's no reform possible. So I think people are unwilling to acknowledge the reality that they see, feel, hear, smell, taste, and touch, because to do that would be so devastating to them psychologically, they can't even fathom it. That's why I think it's happening. Is it a, is it a, a fear of isolation? It's a fear of abandonment. We don't have the family anymore. As you just said, the family's been destroyed. You can't go to your parents. You can't go to your brother or sister, your community, your church, your civic organization, your business, your school. Those have all been destroyed. We don't have them left in the cities. We have them in the rural areas. And the rural areas that are quite religious are the only areas that are opposing these mandates and that are fighting back because they don't need yes. the government. They don't need it. We do. Los Angelinos need the government. If we didn't have a government anymore, it would be anarchy. Or so we think. It's funny that you say that uh, because I, just anecdotally speaking, have noticed what appears to be a rise in people's, say, spirituality or faith in the last 18 months. Do you think there's a correlation? Completely. Every single talk that I've been invited to in the last 18 months, with one exception, which was a civic organization by a conservative political group in Orange County, which is just to the south of L.A., has been evangelical Christian churches. Every single one. In the, in the United States, the only organized group at a national level, and what I, don't, I don't mean national in the sense of like Washington, D.C., I mean across the country, the only single group that you can see across the country that has been organized and opposed to this government takeover has been the Christian church. There's no exception. There's no other example. There are individual groups spread out throughout the U.S. that are unaffiliated, an Orthodox community, say, in New York, uh, a pro-liberty community in Orange County, a uh, pro-Second Amendment group in Texas. But if you want to look at, on a national scale, the only group that's left that's fighting this uniformly are churches, primarily evangelical Christian churches. And that, in my view, is why they've been under such relentless attack and assault from the very beginning. You cannot pray or worship in your church. You can buy beer, you can buy wine, you can buy marijuana, but you cannot worship in your church. Shut the churches down, you've already vanquished your potential enemy. Why do you think that is? The, ev the evangelical churches being the, 
the fighters for freedom, as it were? Because they don't need government. Their allegiance is to God. And their values are incredibly strongly held. Sure. And they are yeah. impervious to politics. So they have been, they have essentially been inoculated to fear. They only fear God. They don't fear the government. They have been uh, armored, essentially, against compliance because they comply with their their pastor they comply with their uh their their text they don't comply with irrational policies mandates and dictates when they go against their higher value and their higher purpose so they don't have any reason to be concerned about this they they, they give their lives for their beliefs what secular person is willing to give his life for his secular beliefs very rare you've used the phrase mass delusional psychosis what do you mean by that well, this is a phrase that I came up with early on, back in April, May of 2020. I think it's it's evolved uh, way beyond this. And I even said fear moves to delusional psychosis, which moves to control and now, of course, purge. Stage two was the mass delusional psychosis. That's what followed the fear. And what I meant by that was that when you have a population that has been encouraged to be afraid, and afraid for a long period of time, not just scared because they almost stepped off the curb and a bus ran them over or almost did, but really terrorized. Uh, they're kept in a state of, I would say, trauma, really. Mm. You start to see this spreading of irrational behavior and irrational beliefs because it's reflected everywhere you go. When you're told that you have to put a mask on in a park while you're sitting by yourself, or you'll be arrested or ticketed or fined, even if you don't wear a mask, you start seeing all the people wearing masks outside in the parks. And you start to ask yourself, am I crazy or are they crazy? And most people can't tolerate that dissonance. So they put the mask on because they don't want to be different. They don't want to be the odd one out. They want to be the normal ones that are following the rules, even if it makes no sense. Reminds me of this experiment that was done a few years ago where uh, a city block was taken over with some hidden cameras and signs were put up saying, in this block, you must walk backwards. And they hired some actors to go and start walking backwards. And pretty soon, all the people that weren't part of the project were walking backwards down the street. And then they would wait until they got to the end of the, of the block, and the camera guy would sort of pull them away into a corner so that it didn't blow up the experiment for the next one. And say, hey, I just want to ask you a question. Why were you walking backwards? And he kind of looked embarrassed. Well, the sign said so, and everyone else was. He said, but that's just, that's just crazy. We, 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 you know, we just set this up. You know, This is all a joke. And the guy turns bright red, and he's embarrassed. There's this idea of compliance, of doing irrational things that doesn't make sense, that's very powerful in a community. Now you take that onto a higher level and it's not just behaving strangely for a block by walking backwards. It starts to actually get into your mind that there's, there's truly a fear, a, a risk, a danger out there that we have to all be unified to fight against. And that means standing apart. That means uh, turning in people who are violating rules at the supermarket. That means obviously wearing masks. It means staying home. It means shuttering our businesses. Very similar to that movie by M. Night Shyamalan, his first and, in my opinion, only decent movie that he ever produced, which was called The Village, where a group of mm. people went from New York City, moved to the village, Assault. and then inculcated fear in the children that grew up in the village of monsters in the woods wearing orange robes. Everyone outside of the parents, who of course knew that this was all a lie, all the children were inculcated into a mass delusional psychosis, into believing something that wasn't true, through fear, through fear. 
And that's what the government has done. They've created this village with this coronavirus as the orange monster. And they've told us we have to perform rituals to satiate this monster's hunger and to, and to protect us from its, its, its prickly claws. And we all comply and we all do it. And then we're rewarded by saying, guess what? Case numbers are going down. Deaths are, are really uh, on the wane. With all these vaccinations and these new shots, we're seeing safety is just the next, it's just the next uh, step in the, in, the, in the road. It's like the five-year plan of the Soviets. Come on, comrades, keep fighting. We're going to make it. And then, of course, at the end of the month, the year, the five years, we're still seeing that it's not working. But that's, right. that's okay. We just didn't work hard enough another five years. That's, that's what I mean by mass delusional psychosis. It's this inculcation of irrational beliefs that are self-harming but that people continue to perpetuate and follow because they're scared to death to challenge the reality and to say the emperor has no clothes because they're, they're worried about being expulsed and ostracized. Are you suggesting that humans are by default pack animals? Absolutely. People are inherently sheep. Uh, the only thing that helps prevent that from becoming a, a, a fatal flaw, which is what we're seeing now around the world, are local institutions, local communities, families, churches, civic organizations. These are the groups that actually care about the well-being and protect their members. And these are the ones that provide the protection of the individual or the small group from becoming part of a larger herd. If you don't have those, then the only person, the only shepherd really, is the one guy out in, in Washington. And the, the, the figure that we have of the shepherd right now is uh, this um, incontinent and incompetent brain-dead president named Joe Biden. He's not really a shepherd. He's just a, he's just a stick figure. But people follow him blindly, good old, kind little old Uncle Joe, because they don't know who else to turn to at the local level unless they have a strong family, unless they have a strong church. I think human beings inherently, inherently do not have a desire to be free. They have a sure. desire to be taken care of. Yo. That is their inherent nature. And that's actually very healthy as infants. We don't want to be free infants running around, crawling into sewer pipes and getting eaten by dogs. We want to be taken care of by our mother who provides us with protection physically and nourishment through her breast, through food. That's a, a healthy, uh, a pro-human um, instinct. But we need to, to throw that off through challenging our environment in order to be free later on. If we don't throw that off, or as of now, we regress back into an infantile mm. state where we reject freedom, but we crave dependency, we're not going to have a mother there giving us our diaper and, our, and our, 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 our milk. We're going to have a government providing us all of those things. And I think that's what people have reverted back to. They, they have regressed back into a state of dependency that has been encouraged and facilitated through fear, through compliance, through all of these left-wing and corporatist programs. I mean, I'm talking about these all these different points of light that are all converging into one direction, which is to create a dependent population, dependent on the state, uh, just like in, you know, in, in Orwell or Brave New World of Huxley. That's what we're living through right now. That's where we're headed. We're almost there. I mean, at some point, uh, and I don't know if we've passed that point yet, I pray that we haven't, but at some point we're going to reach a a line that we cross that we cannot go back from, barring a complete catastrophe like a, a multinational world war where, as I learned growing up, World War II, I don't know how we're going to fight it with, but World War III will definitely be fought with sticks and stones. Is there a breaking point? I hope there is. I actually do. 
In fact, I'm hoping that the breaking point will be reached quickly rather than through a ratcheting effect. I think it's the ratcheting effect that has provoked, let me pick that back, that has prevented the breaking point from being reached earlier. I can't speak to the rest of the world because I don't have access to all of the information, but I do see signs of it happening in some Western European countries, certainly in Central Europe. But here in the United States, I think we're hitting a, a, a reaching a tipping point where there could actually be a break. Uh, there's an enormous rally happening right now in Los Angeles and downtown with over 11,000 people led by firemen and police, first responders, their wives, their husbands, their children, families, marching from one park in central LA to City Hall to protest forced vaccination of first responders. We see lawsuits that were filed, 12 of them just in the last week, simultaneously across states, one of which actually won in a district federal court just two days ago, blocking the Biden administration's forced vaccine mandates for businesses that have over 100 employees. We're seeing institutions delaying and deferring the vaccine mandates in their places of work for 30, 60, 90 days because they recognize that if they lost 20, 30, 40% of their employees, the entire company would shut down. The infrastructure of shipping and trucking would collapse. The Mm -hmm. firehouses would, as Nero used to to, to wrote about uh, in in Rome, pulls away the firemen in order to keep the taxes going and then the city burns. Well, New York is burning. We don't have 50% of the firehouses in operation now in New York. So this is, this is creating a, a real distress. This is not just a theoretical or, or minor practical inconvenience. You don't have police, you don't have doctors, you don't have fires being put out, you have lawlessness, bums sleeping on your porch, you have um, uh, transport ships being, or not ships, but containers being broken into because they're stalled in the roads in Los Angeles and all this for the Christmas shopping uh, and products are being taken off and, and unloaded by homeless people and then converted uh, for cash to buy fentanyl, and then they're overdosing and dying in the streets. This is this is apocalyptic level stuff. And even people in the middle, I'm not talking about the far left, I'm not talking about the rational conservatives, I'm talking about the 60% of Americans who are kind of in the, I just want to live my life category, it's starting to hit them. And they're starting to get scared. They're starting to wonder, is there going to be someone to come to my house if a guy is breaking my window and threatening me with a gun? In San Francisco, the Chronicle, the paper in San Francisco, wrote just yesterday an op-ed saying, you know what, maybe residents should just get used to the idea of suffering burglaries every now and then in their homes with armed intruders because we don't have enough police force to actually keep the streets safe. Well, the people in the city, they, they rose up and they said, are you kidding me? Burglary is now considered to be just something we have to tolerate? This is, San Francisco is the farthest left progressive city in the entire country outside of maybe Portland and Seattle. And they're standing up and saying, no way. So yes, I think that a breaking point is inevitable. I, I hope it happens now. And I hope the people who die from it die quickly so that we don't have a larger number of people that die over a longer period mm-hmm. of spread out time. Because we're gonna have casualties and losses either way. I'd rather we rip the Band-Aid off and start treating the wound rather than just watching it fester until we have to amputate the entire arm. An undercurrent of our entire conversation thus far has has been family and the the destruction of the family whether it's on a macro level or on a micro level is there a correlation then to our identity and the attack on that throughout the last say 18 months 
I think that in the United States and in the West at large, we have been primed for the last three, four decades, and, and I describe this in my book, The United States of Fear, that the core units, the most basic distinctions of humanity, which are male and female, are being assaulted. And they have been under assault for a very long time. The feminist movement is, is, is the most recent example of this, and, and perhaps the new transgender movement that is, um, that is following it. And that is, if one destroys through recurrent indoctrination, laws, uh, breakdowns of, of church values and family values, the biological and psychological distinctions between men and women, if you remove the bipolarity of the male and the female, the masculine and the feminine, and you move everybody into a neutered position, which is essentially what transgenderism is actually, you will inherently destroy the most important qualities that counterbalance the man and the woman and that lead to uh, the collapse of society. And they are, for men, they are courage, bravery, taking risks, going out, bringing something back that can protect and nurture the family. Hunting. And for the woman, hunting, exactly. I mean, that is what men are born to do. And now, of course, they go and hunt at the corporate office and they bring back the paycheck yeah. or the sales receipts. But they bring back what keeps the family going and they take risks. Men in the United States and across the world at large still participate in the most dirty, dangerous jobs, coal mining, trucking, the military, nuclear energy. Yeah, they, they are taking the risk. Women are not mining coal. Mm. So the movement now is to say there's no more distinctions. Women can be like men, men can be like women. And if men are no longer encouraged to act courageously and to take risks, to contain the feminine, which is the emotionality of the woman, and it's good, I'm not criticizing that, women are more emotional than men. They need that in order to remain connected to their children and also to provide the emotional nourishment to their husbands. They provide an absolutely critical component of life and life force. Femininity is not less than masculinity, it is complementary. But if we tell women that's not what they have, they're not offering that anymore. They need to compete with men. Now what we have is we have essentially eunuchs, men with no balls, and then we have histrionics, women who have no emotional containment because there are no men to contain them anymore. They suffer from a lack of verbal restraint because men can't tell them, look, 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 we better just tone this down a little bit calm down, you're going to be fine, we're going to get back to this later. Because if you say that, you're a misogynist, you're attacking the woman's power. If we don't have those restraints on women from men, healthy, loving, assertive restraint, then women, and I said this for the long time in the last year, women are now out in the street running around Karens, as they say, turning people in for violating ridiculous irrational rules like my friend who went to the zoo yesterday and he was tossing bananas at the chimpanzees and this woman comes up to him and starts yelling at him turns him into the zookeeper and berates him in front of his children for being a bad father you wouldn't have seen this three or four years ago but you're seeing it now and it's women who are doing this not men it's women but the men are out there with their masks on showing that they have no balls and do you think that that makes women feel safe I've talked to police officers, female police officers, who say, when I leave my house and I see men with tats and guns, and this is out in the woods, and I see them wearing a mask, this does not make me feel protected. This makes me feel scared. Because if they're afraid of this virus, if they're so scared that they're going to die from this woo flu, what's going to happen when the bear comes out of the woods? What's going to happen when the rapist tries to attack me? 
What, what's going to happen when my children are going to be kidnapped by the man in the park? What are they going to do? With their mask on, say, please, please stop, please, please. They're not going to put their lives on the line. They won't even put their mouth on the line. So I think this is a huge problem, the attack on the masculine, and the feminine, mm. the male and the female. And we're turning men into cowards. We're turning women into histrionic control freaks, bitches. And I'm not attacking women. In fact, I think the women are really losing on this. They're, they're, there's more divorce, more loneliness, more sadness, depression in women than ever before. 40, 50-year-old women who are childless, unmarried, crying into their hog and dies every night because they missed out on a relationship because they thought that their job was to go get that career and fight off that masculine patriarchy. And the men are all alone playing games and masturbating and using pot to palliate their, their own pain. It is disaster. I mean, this has been going on for years, as you noted, but I mean, has it accelerated in the last 18 months? Completely. It's completely accelerated. It's, it's on steroids. What I saw progressing in the last couple of decades and what I saw in my practice in the last 10 years moving forward is now double, tripled, quadrupled. Wow. I have not seen any, any slowdown to this. In fact, it's now become not just a sort of social norm, it's become uh, a legal norm. You're seeing laws being passed now in the United States where parents are unable, they unable to get involved in their child's renaming of their, their, their first name, their expression of sexual identity, wearing skirts and dresses if they're boys, going into bathrooms that are girls' bathrooms, at least they were previously. There is such a confusion now that has become um, legally enforced on the part of kids that I'm concerned that the next generation of children is going to be completely and utterly bereft of understanding what their meaning and purpose is in life. And I would say this, the, the attack on meaning, the, 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 the theft of passion, purpose, joy by government, by the left, by all of these activist causes on people here in this country, and this is true across the world in the West as well, that that attack on meaning has actually been what has caused so much of the psychological pain and turmoil. If you look at groups in the U.S. that are doing well, the Christian evangelicals, they know what their life is about. They have meaning. It's the young, single, secular, urban, lefty-leaning Democrats that are the most unhappy, the most drug-addicted, the most suicidal, the most um, angst-ridden, lonely, non-engaged in, in productive relationships and unemployed status uh, groupings of any, any people in the United States. Do you think that a counterbalancing act that could occur from this this uh, pseudo pandemic um, would be a return to family values and faith and uh, perhaps old fashioned ways of doing things? I have seen a resurgence, as you were pointing out earlier. Um, here in the U.S. of religious practice, religious observance of young people. And I just finished seeing a patient just now before we got on here uh, who was a, a dyed-in-the-wool lefty in his high school years, left for a few years, came back to see me in therapy again, and now he's a conservative. He's pro-liberty, pro-freedom. He's very critically thinking in his orientation. He's reading and watching news from wi widely from different sources. Now, this is the minority. I, I, I'm in no way... Uh, trying to negate what I just said, 
But I'm seeing this um, renaissance in small groups of individuals, even in cities, but certainly in the rural and sort of middle America, of people who have realized that there is a tremendous price to, to be paid and that we, we are paying it right now by losing our identity as husbands and wives, as men, as, as women, as parents, as, um, as students, as friends, as lovers. All of these roles that, that have really allowed humanity to grow and prosper and flourish for, 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 for millennia, that as all of these disappear, as all these are being taken away and as we voluntarily give them up, we are becoming less happy. And I think some people are noticing it. And it's not a political issue so much. I mean, it is in the sense that conservative values are sort of rational, basic values. But I, this is a, a macro, uber political issue. This is, a, this is an issue of humanity. Uh, just last week, the uh, Virginia election, the state of Virginia here in the United States, uh, sent a, a, an earthquake uh, rumble through the entire political spectrum because uh, men, women, immigrants, Native Americans, rich, poor, black, white, right and left, all came together as parents to vote out all of the Democrats in the state. They made a clean sweep, the governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, to put into power uh, Republicans who happen to be women and blacks and immigrants, so this is not a racial thing, who were supportive of bringing the power and the meaning back to the family mm. unit, back to the local level. We don't want this statewide, federal-wide, top-down approach to indoctrinating and controlling our children. This was not political in that sense. It was political, but it was really more about values. And and this should, I hope it will, frighten all the people that are trying to force, push down our throats all of these um, post-modern, uh, top-down, federalist, totalitarian sort of, 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 you know, blue Maoist turncoat kind of, of uniforms and indoctrination and um, cede some space to the individual unit and the local people. I don't know if it'll succeed. I, I'm agnostic or I'm ambivalent about this. I, I know that if it doesn't, we're lost, mm -hmm. but I, I can't see any any obvious direction right now. I'm just hoping that the tide will start to turn because we really do need this this new movement, this, as I said, a renaissance to come forth on, on a local level. I don't think we can fix this federally. I don't think we can fix it nationally or fix it internationally. It has to come from the bottom up. The people have to take back the power as people from their overlords. That is the only way that I see in the long run uh, this ending positively, short of a mass, mass uh, violent conflict, which I really hope doesn't happen. Well, what can we do? What I tell people on a psychological level is you can act in spite of your fear, you can take a risk, you can show and display courage, particularly men. Men more than anything right now must show courage. They must put something on the line, their job, their relationship, their uh, social status or position in their community and fight for truth, fight for what's 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 real. And, and you know what it is. Men know what it is. They just don't have the balls to put it out there. They need to fight. They need to stand up at a local level, wherever they happen to be anywhere in the world. That is that is absolutely paramount. Depending on what you can do in your local community, because this differs depending on where you are in the world. You need to get involved. You need to organize groups. There's power in numbers, whether it's a, a telegram group uh, like the firefighters did here in L.A. One firefighter set up a telegram group, and in 72 hours, he had 1,200 firemen 
signed up with his Telegram group, and now he's the one that's down in L.A. right now with 11,000 people pushing back against vaccine mandates. It all came from one church talk that I attended, and he was in the audience and asked, what do I do? And I said, open a group on Telegram. Find other firemen who believe what you believe, that you need to be free. And two or three months later, here we are. You really can do something. We have technology. Use it to your advantage if you're in a country that has this technology. Use it. The enemy is using it. Why don't you take it? Why don't you use it? I think there are options that people have. I think people are, are, are not as creative as they, as they really have the capacity to be. But you have to start with being able to be um, a risk taker, to push through the fear, to take a stand. And very importantly, I tell people, tolerate the heat for a week or two because you're going to get attacked. You're going to get viciously slandered. You might actually be censored. We've all been there. You've, it's happened to you. It's happened to me. Everyone you know has probably happened to. If you can tolerate that, you will then be in a, per, a position where the people that are not honest and sincere and supportive will wither away. They'll take their distance from you. And then people who trust you, people who love you, people who support you, they will see you standing out there and they will come to your side and they will become your friends and allies. And it's happened to me and it can happen to anybody, but you have to trust in that process that you will not be alone in this. People will. People are out there. They're looking for people to lead them and to organize with them. You just have to be the first one to step up, and the price is well worth it. It's quite funny what you're saying. Um, it it in a weird kind of way, you are on the prowl for for people who are on your team, as it were. Uh, if I, if you go into a, it sounds ridiculous that we're having this conversation, but if I go into a store and uh, I see somebody who now, here in South Africa, you really cannot do anything uh, with without a mask. You have to have a mask on almost always. But if if it so happens that you're in a store and you see someone working in the store without a mask, you immediately think, ah, that's that's my people. He's one of us. <laughs> yes, he's one of us. It, it was never like that. No. <laughs> never, never. I think back in the 40s and 50s in the US, you would go to places that had like, you know, back back room, um, uh, illegal uh, uh, distilleries and alcohol parties or places where blacks and whites would go dancing together. And you kind of see him in the door and say, yeah, you're one of us. We don't care about alcohol. We don't care about race. We just want to have a good time. We want to know that you're a good person. That hasn't been the case for a very, very long time. I mean, we were in the U.S. We're living in a relatively free country. At least we were until recently. Um, a radio host that I listen to often used to go 30, 40 years ago before the wall fell and before the Soviet Union collapsed to uh, the Soviet Union. And he said he would uh, have to whisper to people, look right and left when he would talk to them because he was trying to give lists of Jews, names of Jews and artifacts to come back out of the Soviet Union. He was a Jew, is a Jew. And he said, that's the way it was when I would travel to the Soviet Union. We would like look around, we'd see if there was someone kind of on our side based on these little hidden cues, we'd whisper back and forth, make sure no one was listening. That's what's going on now. You go into a store, or maybe, maybe you go out of a store that has a mask requirement and the moment the guy walks out of the store as you're coming in, he rips the mask off his face and you stop him and you're like, that's right. You're one of us. I, I know. I know. And maybe oh maybe you look right and left and you say, "Hey, <laughs> hey, uh, we're, we're you, you live nearby. You come here often. You you want, but you don't want anybody to hear you because you don't want people to look at you. Oh, those are those anti-maskers. 
So there's this combination mm. of like sort of subtle cues of, of, of knowing who who's in your tribe, but you don't yes. necessarily want to go out and publicize it because you don't want to be put out as a target. You don't want to certainly For sure. have that other person targeted. It's a very strange kind of um, like almost totalitarian life where you're being watched all the time. And yet at the same time, you have to distinguish yourself in some way very subtly so that other people can kind of recognize when you're on the same mm. page, but you don't want to stand out too much. It's a, it's a very bizarre kind of experience to have in a ostensibly free country. But there's also a sense of integrity that, that comes into play. For example, I now find myself supporting those small um, non-franchised stores that don't care too much about the mask because they will go under if they have to try and follow all yeah. those rules. That's so true. I was at an event I organized yesterday on vaccine harm to children out in the valley, which is a sort of suburban community north of Los Angeles City. And one of the physicians that supports our side came to it and I chatted with her afterwards. And she said, you know, I live about 20, 30 minutes further up into the valley and we live in this little bubble community where there's obviously retail large chain stores uh, because they're everywhere. but we sort of know in our community which of the mom and pop shops are against this and which of them are towing the line. And we have little lists that we hand out to our friends at school and the different mothers. And we, we see sort of signs in the windows about or reading between the lines, whether there's a, 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 a pro mask sign or an anti mask sign. And when the word gets around. And so we as a community, which are largely pro-liberty, we start to put our dollars and our money and our support into the local bike shop rather than the bike rack at Target. Uh, we go to the, um, the mom and pop coffee shop that sort of winks at us as we go in without a yeah. mask and just turns a blind eye rather than Starbucks, right? They can do this because they have alternatives. And the communication is very intimate because they all live in this one little area. Mm. It's hard to do that in a city like Los Angeles because there isn't a sub-community in LA that can survive like this because there are too many prowlers, too many predators moving around, sending out Twitter posts saying, hey, I was out in this little cute neighborhood uh, in the Lancashire district south of Hollywood and there's this lovely little coffee shop that I want, wanted to go into and guess what? None of them are wearing masks and then she tweets it live. And then pretty soon it, it gets reposted to several thousand more people. And then someone says, let's call the health department. And then the next yeah. day, the poor place gets shut down. Mm. So it's really hard to do that in an urban environment. But it ha it's happening everywhere in the suburbs. It's happening in the places where there's just enough yeah. contraforce where the, the, the prowlers um, are, not, are not powerful enough to actually intimidate those businesses. Mark, we're coming in for landing. Um, in front of you, there is a crystal ball. What do you see? I see that it's going to get worse before it gets better. I see a lot of pain, a lot of injury, and a lot of death as these uh, shots uh, come out with children. I see a lot of unemployment. I see hyperinflation. Uh, I see real, real pain and real suffering coming to a, a home near you, maybe coming to your home. and. Only through that suffering will there be a galvanized effort across the majority of the population, not just the awake people, the 20% that are actually talking right now, but the rest of the population to actually start to take action. 
And I'm, I'm girding myself for that. I, I've, I've lived in a lot of really hard environments. I've lived poor. I've lived in garages. I've gone for periods of time without having any really decent food, being sick without medication. I can handle that. Um, I, I, I'm all right. But I think it's going to be really hard for a lot of people who have been living a comfortable, affluent, and stable life, and they're going to suffer a lot. But, but if we can get through that, we will get the most important thing back, the most important thing, more important than our economy, more important than our comfort. We're going to get our freedom back. We need our liberty because without liberty, without freedom, we're just living like the Middle Ages. So it's going to get dark before it gets better, but I am hopeful, I am optimistic that same time next, this, this next year, we will be living in a, in a free country and in a free world. Um, because the alternative to me um, is, is, it's really, for me, it's just too bleak to contemplate. Where can people find you? I have a Facebook page, which is my name, Mark McDonald, MD where I post much of my interviews and what I write about and other very important information that I think is helpful to people to be educated and informed. I also have uh, a Twitter page where I post uh, almost as frequently, which is M McDonald MD. And now within the next week or two, I'll have a book out, which I hope uh, will be disseminated widely, which is going to be called United States of Fear. It will be available on Amazon within seven to 10 days. And I should have an author page up shortly, which I just uh, purchased and am building as we speak, uh, which is called dissidentmd.com. I like dissidentmd.com. I like it too, because dissidents are those that are trying to be courageous, speak the truth, and are opposing uh, irrational and anti-liberty forces. And, and I think in a nutshell, that's what I've been trying to do and trying mm -hmm. to emulate for the last couple of years, uh, as, as have you. Mark, please don't go anywhere, but it's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you, Mark McDonald, for joining me here in the trenches. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.